I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as we're making our way and resuming our study of uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, we come to uh, chapter 2, and uh, for our sermon today, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. But since it's been a while, I'll just go ahead and uh, read the entire chapter for us. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith and repentance to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel and hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, you'll recall that the Apostle Paul is addressing the serious issue of division within the church at Corinth. Each person was claiming particular leaders within the church, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Peter, and they were uh, giving exclusive loyalty to these leaders, and the church was divided amongst party factions, and they were quarreling with one another. And you can imagine that each one of these groups, whether it be the Paul group or the Apollos group or the Peter group, that they were claiming superior wisdom and insight into the mind of God, and they were viewing the others with contempt as if they were inferior 
or less mature in their Christian walks. Now, Paul will go on to say that the very fact that they are divided with one another shows that they are not acting in a mature manner, but quite the contrary, they're acting in a childish manner. Infantile, he'll say in chapter 3, verse 1. You're, like, you're acting like infants, he says. And the ones who were really mature, as he says in, in verse 6, were the ones who recognized that the wisdom and power of God were displayed not in human eloquence or rhetoric or the wisdom of this age, but rather the wisdom of God is displayed in Christ crucified in order that we might be together with him. This is what Martin Luther called the theology of the cross, that God reveals himself to us not through outward glory and splendor, but through suffering and the cross. And Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow after him so that while we suffer in this life, we will experience glory later. And Paul talks about this glory that we will experience, alluding to Isaiah 64, when he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, to talk about the fact that this glory that awaits us in Christ is above and beyond anything we can ask or think. And yet this glory... Uh, that no eye has seen nor ear heard, neither has anyone even dared to imagine, has begun to be revealed to us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says there in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. And so while Paul has been focusing on the fact that God, that the Father has once and for all revealed himself to us through his Son... Now, for our passage today, we will see how he applies that message, the message of the cross, how he applies that message of Christ crucified to each and every one of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so seeing the triune God working in our salvation, the Father revealing himself to us through the Son, and then applying that to each and every one of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means when he talks about the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that through the preaching of the gospel, faith is created in the hearts of the listeners. And so he talks about how the Holy Spirit is especially uh, gifted or especially uh, 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 able to do this because he says in verse 10 that the Spirit searches everything. The Holy Spirit subjects everything to his discerning gaze. He knows all. He's omniscient, even, as King James says, the deep things of God. You can imagine that the particular groups within the church at Corinth were claiming to have superior wisdom and insight into the mind of God, but those who boast of their knowledge were no match for the Holy Spirit. No one knows more about God than the Holy Spirit, because he is God. And Paul goes on to to use an analogy in the same way that no one knows your thoughts, your deepest, darkest secrets. No one knows what's going on inside of your mind except your own spirit who's within you, your inner self. So in the same way, no one else knows the mind of God or the thoughts of God or the things of God, literally, except for the Holy Spirit of God because he comes from God. That's what he says there in verse 12. And and this correlates to what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15, that he proceeds from the Father. 
That's why we confess in the Nicene Creed that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father as well as the Son. Now, in, when, when Paul talks about that, the fact that no one else besides the Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God, he's not denying such self-knowledge to the Father and the Son. Of course, the Father knows himself. Of course, the Son knows himself. What Paul is saying here is that no one else in all of creation, no, uh, no other angel, no other man, no matter how learned they are, the best of the best of our theologians, the, the most knowledgeable angel ever on, to be created, no one knows God the way he knows himself. And the Holy Spirit is particularly and uniquely suited to communicate that knowledge of God because he is both the Spirit of the Father and he is the Spirit of the Son. And so the Father and the Son can both reveal themselves to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, verse 9, that uh, in one breath he can call the Holy Spirit, both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 that, that he will send the Holy Spirit, and in that way both Father and Son will make their homes with us. And so the Holy Spirit is uniquely suited because he alone knows the deep things of God. But the reason, all the point, all of the, 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 the reason why the Holy Spirit is sent to us is, as we see in verse 12, so that we might understand, that we might know and believe the gospel, or as Paul calls it here, the things that are freely given to us by God. So the Holy Spirit comes to us and reveals this knowledge to us, not so that we could be know-it-alls, but that we can understand and embrace the gospel, those things that have been freely given to us by God. And this spirit who comes from God is in stark contrast to the spirit we find in the world. So in other words, you're not going to get this anywhere else. There's nowhere else in all of creation that you will know and understand the things that are freely given to you by God. There's no way, uh, apart from God's special revelation to us through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we will come to know God as our only blessedness and reward. There's many things you can learn in this world, but you're not going to learn the gospel. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit, only through the Spirit who comes from God are you going to learn that. And so, other words, the, the, in other words, the gospel comes from outside of this world. It is sent directly from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, how does this come to us? Does God zap us with lightning and then we immediately understand it? Do we have to uh, 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 ascend to the highest hill to learn this? Uh, do we have to go on a pilgrimage? Do we have to you know, achieve a, a, a spiritual state in order to be enlightened? Well, no. You learn about the things of God through the Holy Spirit of God through simple, spirit-led preaching. Look there in verse 13. Paul says, and we impart this. Now, that's an unfortunate translation. Literally, he says, we speak this. And perhaps you have a, a King James, and that's the way it translate, uh, it's translated. It's through simple verbal communication. We speak this through spirit-led preaching. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith is created in your heart. Faith comes from hearing. You worship God with your ears. And God creates faith through your ears through simple spirit-led preaching. Paul says we speak this, 
or, or uh, talking about this communication. And yet Paul, once again, is determined not to compromise this message of the gospel with the ways and me- methods adopted by the world. Look, look there in verse 13. He says, we, in, we impart, or we speak this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but words that are taught by the Holy Spirit. It's been said that the medium is the message. In other words, what you say is just as important as how you say it. So there's really nothing new under the sun. When you, when you hear about people who say, churches who say, well, we want to preach the gospel, but we want to preach it in a way that's more, that, that can relate to people. Perhaps in a way that's more palatable to this world. Perhaps if we adopt the ways of the world, whether it be Hollywood techniques or Madison Avenue techniques or the language of power that you see in Washington, D.C., if we can just adopt the ways and methods of, of the world and, and communicate the gospel through that, then maybe we can get more people in the pews. Maybe we can get a better turnout if we, if we adopt these more attractive ways or if we speak in a way that might entertain or tickle the ears of the listeners. And Paul says, no. As soon as you do that, you rob the, the, the message of the cross of its power. As soon as you compromise the gospel through the method you adopt, it's no longer the good news. And so we need to communicate this spiritual message in a spiritual way. I think that's what he means there in, at the end of verse 13 when he says, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, the Greek here, the way that Paul's communicating is, is a little ambiguous. And, and in my Bible alone, there are three options given. If uh, it, I have a footnote at the bottom of the page that says, another way of looking at this is interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual language or comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's a more literal translation, or perhaps the way the NIV says it, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. And so regardless of how you want to interpret or translate this into English, I think the point is the same. The Holy Spirit is involved throughout the entire process of the communication and preaching of the gospel. He was at work in the inspiration of the very text. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, for example, or when Isaiah was prophesying, it was the Holy Spirit who was inspiring them to proclaim not just the words of man, but also the words of God. The Holy Spirit is at work in the proclamation of that message. As the preacher preaches the word, you're not just hearing the words of man. You are hearing the very words of God because the Holy Spirit is is leading the preaching of the word. The Holy Spirit's at work in the act of hearing, listening to the word, and enabling the listener, enlightening their mind, uh, enabling them to embrace and understand the message of salvation, and then, and then renewing that person, sanctifying that per- person through the proclamation of the truth. And so it's spiritual words being proclaimed to spiritual people in a spiritual manner. The Holy Spirit's at work from beginning to end. It's not as if the Holy Spirit just inspired it, and then we said, thanks, Holy Spirit, we'll take it from here. No, the Holy Spirit is at work from beginning 
from the beginning to the end of the application of the message of the cross. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. And the reason why the Holy Spirit is vital in the communication of the gospel, the reason why we need him from beginning to end, is because who we are by nature. Look what Paul says there in verse 13. He talks about the natural person, or perhaps better, the natural man. And and that would include you too, ladies. And the reason why I think it's better to translate it natural man is because when Paul talks about the natural man, he's talking about who we are in Adam, what we inherited from our very first father. And the reason why, and, and we got this from him because he gave it to our parents, and their, our parents got it from their parents all the way back to Adam. This is who we are by nature, nature, the natural man, as opposed to the spiritual man, the person who's been renewed by the Holy Spirit. What are we told about the natural man? Verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Which is another way of saying he rejects the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Well, because the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is a stumbling block in foolishness. The natural man hears about a crucified Messiah who now invites us to take up our cross to follow after him in order that we might live. And they say, no, thank you. I'm not going to believe that message. I reject that message. But notice that Paul just doesn't say that they, would, they reject it because they would rather not. They reject it because they cannot. Did you catch that language? He is not able to understand that. This is not a question of preference. It is a question of ability. Now, I'm sure each and every one of us had those smart aleck teachers that when you raised your hand and you asked, can I go to the bathroom? They would say, well, Johnny, I'm sure you can go to the bathroom, but I think you're trying to ask, may I go to the bathroom, right? It's a question of permission versus ability, right? This is a question of ability, and Paul says that the natural man in and of himself, unaided by the Holy Spirit, is completely, totally unable or unable to embrace the the gospel. This is part of what we confess about the doctrine of total depravity, that fallen man in and of himself, apart from the Holy Spirit, is totally unable to embrace the gospel. Why? Because it's spiritually discerned. I think that that word uh, should be capitalized. Spiritual with a capital S. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who's at work. In other words, the things of the Spirit of God are only discerned through the work of the Holy Spirit, not through natural process, but only through the Spirit. Uh, it's only discerned through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is in contrast to the, the natural man, is in contrast to what Paul says in verse 15, the spiritual man or the spiritual person. It's really interesting what Paul says there. Perhaps when I read it to you, maybe your ears kind of perked up and you thought, what is Paul getting at here when he says that the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one? That's kind of odd for Paul to say. And some commentators have suggested that actually these aren't Paul's words, but these are things that the people, the people within the church of Corinth were saying about themselves. 
In other words, that this should be in quotations. And that Paul is quoting what some of these people who boasted of their wisdom, who saw themselves as spiritual, that they would boast in saying, well, I get to judge everybody, and no one gets to judge me. They were, they were boasting of their unquestioned superiority. And so if that's the case, then verse 15 should be in quotations, much like we see in chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul undoubtedly quotes what they were saying in Corinth when, when he says, all things are lawful for me. Verse 12, at least in the ESV, that's in quotations. Why? Because Paul's not saying that. That's what they were saying in Corinth, and so Paul has this retort. Well, all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so perhaps here, verse 15 should be in quotations. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Well, even if that's the case, even if this was something that the people in Corinth were saying about themselves to kind of boast of their unquestioned superiority, I believe there is a sense where Paul writes this and in a qualified sense would be able to affirm what is being said here. And so perhaps taking what they were saying at Corinth and infusing a new meaning to it, kind of like they were calling themselves mature, when Paul says, well, you're actually acting like babies, here he gives a new meaning. And if that's the case, and certainly the case would be that when he talks about the spiritual person or the spiritual man, he's contrasting that with the natural man in verse 14. And so the spiritual man is the one who has been renewed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who by faith has embraced the gospel and has begun to participate in the powers of the age to come. This is who we are in Christ. We're the spiritual man now. And so with that in mind, he then goes on to talk about how the spiritual man judges all things. Now, what does that mean? That we all get to wear a robe like this and get a, uh, you know, a mallet and start judging people? Well, this word judges is actually the same exact word that we see in verse 14 translated to discern. Another way of translating it would be to assess or to sift out. There's, there's this uh, a, a discernment that is going on in the life of the spiritual man. They're discerning everything. They're looking at everything, and they're sifting it. They're, they're sifting through it. And, and this correlates, this, this sifting or judging or discerning everything corresponds to the work of the Holy Spirit that we read in, in verse 10, that the Holy Spirit searches everything. Everything is subject to the Holy Spirit's discerning gaze. And so likewise, the spiritual person, the person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, gets to engage in that spiritual discernment of everything. Well, what does this look like? Where else is this taught in Scripture? I think 2 Peter chapter 1, when Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Or as James says in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Of course, this comes through God's word. As, as we, as we uh, sing in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Or as Psalm 36 says, in your light do we see light. And so enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we are able to see things as it were through his eyes as we discern things in our life. Now, this is not to say that Christians automatically become experts in any given field. Some Christians sadly act that way. There's certain people who say, well, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I am the world's foremost authority on any and every topic. And if you disagree with me, whether it be in science or politics or art or anything, then you're not just disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with the Holy Spirit. That is not what Paul is saying here. We need to be humble with what we know and what we don't know. Even in our theology, even in our understanding of God and his word, we have to confess that right now we see things in a mere dimly. That's what Paul will say in verse, uh, chapter 13. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And right now, we're, we're looking through a dim mirror. And so we need to be humble with what we know, not just in theology, but in all areas of life. We need to recognize that because of God's common grace, fallen man is capable of achieving the true, the good, and the beautiful. And there is much that we could learn, even from fallen natural man in this world. And we ought not to despise the gifts of the Holy Spirit wherever we find them. And so what is Paul saying here? We get to judge everything. What is he saying? What, what sort of knowledge are we, do we possess through the power of the Holy Spirit? Think about the context again. Let's bring it back to the context. Paul is contrasting two completely different types of wisdom. The wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the age which is to come, which comes from God. I think Paul is talking about those two completely antithetical types of wisdom. One that promises glory now, and one that promises suffering now and glory later through Christ. And thinking about those two different types of wisdom, being gifted by the Holy Spirit, we can look, we can live our lives and discern everything in our life and be able to identify This comes from the wisdom of this age. This comes from the wisdom which is from above. As James says in James chapter 3, the wisdom which from above is first peaceable, uh, open to reason, right? If there's divisions, dissensions, envy, rivalry, that's demonic wisdom. Is there peace? Is there love? Is there humility? That's the wisdom that comes from God. And so when, when Paul talks about the fact that we get to judge everything, it's, it's with that in mind, being able to discern this comes from God, this comes from the world. And yet then he goes on to say that we are judged by no one. Now Paul is not denying what he'll end up writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's not saying that there's no type of judgment for the believer. No. What he's saying is that in our capacity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are not properly judged by anyone other than the Lord. Only God is going to judge us at the last day. And Paul will actually make that point in in chapter 4. 
because the people at Corinth were judging him. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, Paul says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of his heart. I think Paul's saying the same thing that he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so as, as, as we go about our Christian life, we need not fear the judgment of this world. Now, keep in mind, this is in our capacity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You were also, I presume, all of us, citizens of the United States of America or some other jurisdiction, right? If you break the laws of this land, you are subject to judgment. We are called to be subject to every governing authority. So don't think that you can speed on the freeway or do whatever you want. And think that you're, oh, you can't judge me. Only the Lord judges me. No, the Lord's going to judge you through the civil magistrate because you're a citizen of this kingdom too. But in your capacity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, no one can judge you. And you need not fear the judgment of this world. You see, people in Corinth, like us, were very concerned about the world, what the world thought about them. They were very concerned about people judging them. Remember the type of people they were? There weren't many wealthy. There weren't many powerful. There weren't many, according to the standards of the day, who were wise. There were not many movers and shakers within the church at Corinth. And they looked at those rich and powerful people, and they thought, well, what are they thinking about us? Maybe we should live our lives so that the world would, be, would, would, uh, would uh, like us better. But Paul reminds us that we should not subject ourselves to the wisdom of this age. Why? Because it's doomed to pass away. It is doomed to pass away. The rulers of this age condemned our Lord. They crucified the Lord of glory. Surely they will condemn us too. But you see, the Lord freed us from their condemnation. As Paul says in Galatians, we have died to the world. So we need not fear their judgment. And in order to prove this, Paul once again quotes from the prophet Isaiah, this time chapter 40, as he says in verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now, it's really interesting here with this quotation of Isaiah 40, verse 13, Paul's actually quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But if you look at the Hebrew translation or at our English versions of Isaiah 40, 13, it actually says not the mind of the Lord, but it actually says the spirit of the Lord. And that's really interesting considering what Paul has just said about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the mind of God, who reveals God's thoughts to us. And so how fitting that the Greek translators substituted the word spirit with mind because the spirit is the mind of God, as it were. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has, who has known, or as, as Isaiah uh, 
40, verse 13 says in the Hebrew, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? The idea here is that no one can compare to God. He is above and beyond anything we can ask or think. There's, it's, it's declaring his uncomparable greatness. As Paul talks in Romans chapter 11, another place where he quotes this verse, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's Isaiah's point. Whom did he consult? And whom, whom did he, or who made him understand? Who taught God anything? No one. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust in the ashes. That's what the nations are in in comparison to God. And if that's the case, if the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the rulers of this age are nothing more than a drop in the bucket compared to the infinite wisdom of God, at the end of the day, whose opinion do we really care about? Do we care about the world's wisdom and their assessment of us? Or do we care about God? Well, obviously, we, we need to compare about, or we need to uh, concern ourselves with how God thinks about us. Now, it's really interesting, as Paul quotes from Isaiah, as he asks this rhetorical question Who has understood the mind of the Lord? In Isaiah's day, that was a rhetorical question to which the answer was No one. No one has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. Right? But look what Paul says at the very end of our passage. We'll conclude with this. But we have the mind of Christ. In Isaiah's day, the answer was no one knows the mind of the Lord, but now Paul can write, we have the mind of Christ. Do you notice that subtle shift? In the first part of the verse, it's the mind of the Lord, Yahweh. Now Paul says it's the mind of Christ. Now clearly what Paul is saying here is that Christ, the Lord, Christ is the Lord. Christ is Yahweh. This is a clear affirmation of his deity, that he is God of God, light of light. But more importantly and more fundamentally, bringing us back to the context here, Paul is reminding us that the wisdom and the power and the mind of God are communicated to us through a crucified Christ. That's how, that's how we see the mind and power and wisdom of God. And this mind of Christ now belongs to us. We, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. And that is displayed most preeminently in the life of Jesus Christ. As we have his mind and as we have his spirit, we can now start acting the way he did. And in conclusion, I think Paul makes this same exact point in Philippians chapter 2, which I've read before, but I'll read again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's talking about unity here, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Does this remind you of anyone? Remind you of anybody who didn't think about himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? That's why he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what the mind of Christ looks like. Sacrificial love and giving in order to achieve unity. Amen? Let's give thanks.